You're listening to After Images, a podcast for cinephiles that takes a deep dive into moving images. Each episode features a special guest who is invited to explore a film of their choice. After Images is hosted by film writers Franck Bouleg and Marisa C. Hayes. In today's episode, we discuss Bright's Head Revisited in the company of our guest, filmmaker and writer Mark Cousins. Released in 1981, Bright's Head Revisited is a British television series composed of 11 episodes that adapt the eponymous 1945 novel written by Evelyn Waugh. Set during a time period that spans the 1920s to the 1940s, the story follows Charles Ryder, played by Jeremy Irons, as he befriends a young Lord Sebastian Flight, Anthony Andrews, at Oxford, and gradually encounters the rest of his friend's Catholic family at Brideshead, their luxurious country estate. The narrative traces how Charles' friendship with Sebastian becomes increasingly strained due to the latter's problem with alcoholism, leading Charles to grow closer to Sebastian's sister, Lady Julia, played by Diana Quick. The importance of memory, sense of loss and place, as well as friendship and love, are at the heart of Brideshead Revisited. Mark Cousins is a Scottish-Irish filmmaker and writer. His 23 feature-length films, including The Story of Film in Odyssey, The March on Rome, Atomic, The Eyes of Orson Welles, and Women Make Film, have won 30 awards, including the Prix Italia, a Peabody, the Stanley Kubrick Award, the European Film Academy Award for Innovative Storytelling, the Heart of Sarajevo, and the Persistence of Vision Award, They have premiered at the world's major film festivals. Their themes are looking, cities, cinema, politics, childhood, and recovery. His books include Imagining Reality, the favorite book of documentary, the story of film, and the story of looking. He has walked across Los Angeles, Moscow, Beijing, and Mexico City. Mark Cousins, welcome to After Images podcast. Thanks so much for being with us today. You're welcome. Thank you. And today you've chosen to discuss the 1981 television series Brideshead Revisited. So the question that we always open with is, why did you choose this piece Mm -hmm. and what does it mean to you? I think people expect me to talk about movies, but this TV series... I saw when I was 15 and I still don't know exactly why I love it. It is the opposite of me in every way. And yet it entranced me. It floated into my life and slightly changed it. So that's why, because it's the opposite of what I am. Hmm. What sort of distinction, if you make one, uh, do you um, draw between movies and TV series? Is there a difference for you? Um, I don't watch many TV series, you know, I think that for me, movies is about going to the cinema and having, an, a, you know, having a sustained experience where I have no control, I have no handset, I have no pause or rewind, you know, a movie has to be bigger than life, you know, and a TV series is usually in one's living room and it's sort of smaller and it's part of your everyday life. So I think it's where you experience the movie. Obviously, there are aesthetic things. You know, I think movies are are interested more in space and time than TV series are tend to be more interested in drama and psychology, for example. So there are many differences. To come back to Brideshead Revisited, maybe tell us a bit more about how it touched you um, 
what was the surprise of the series and what were the themes that that meant so much to you? Yeah, I mean, I could say quite a lot on that. I was in Northern Ireland, working class boy. I was 15. You know, we had the troubles, as it's called in Northern Ireland. I was a nervous young man. Um, I saw this TV series. I knew nothing about it. I saw this TV series on a small portable TV in my kitchen because my mum and dad wouldn't be interested. I came from a house with no books. So, you know, we didn't, my father was a motor mechanic and my mum was a home help. And so there wasn't any kind of high culture in any way. You know, there was popular music, etc. So, and this TV series was on ITV, not the BBC. The BBC was more cultural and more middle-brow. ITV was entertainment and showbiz. So then this thing came along on our channel. And it was about the aristocracy. It was about England. And of course, as an Irish person, I felt that we had been somewhat colonized by England. You know, Margaret Thatcher was in power. I was already a left of center person. And so Thatcher was re-articulating ideas of empire and conquest. All are the and I was a post-punk. I was interested in bands like the Jam and and Echo and the Bunnymen. There is no way. I should have loved this, and I completely did. And looking back now, there are so many reasons. You know, the men in it were gentle, quite feminine. You know, whereas a lot of the men that I knew were quite macho. That was a simple reason. You know, there was the beauty of the language. I was already trying to read Proust and Virginia Woolf, and and particularly Gertrude Stein was of interest to me then. And the, this writer, the novelist on which the series is based, Evelyn Waugh, was digging into Virgil and Chesterton and a whole range of kind of classical culture, which really entranced me. You know, it was also a TV series about paradise, I think. You know, paradise and paradise lost as well. You know, when you're young, you fall in love with the world a people, a family, a person, beauty, innocence, decadence, sensory things, you know. It was about that moment of finding a temporary paradise. And all of this was dazzling for this working class boy, you know, growing up in a low temperature war. I could say a lot more, but that's the start. (laughs) There are other reasons as well, you know. It's that Proustian thing when you watched it. It's Proustian, isn't it? You know, I was young, obviously. You know, I had I wasn't old enough to have a sense of what elegy is, you know, of what remembering the past is. But this TV series gave me a sense of what it will be like to be older mm. and sadder, looking back on your younger and more um, alive self. Mm. Absolutely. And in such a strong sensorial way too, really tied to sense of place. And as you mentioned, this idea of of paradise, of looking back. Yeah, Yeah, the the construction is very interesting because it's basically there's a parenthesis at the beginning and at the end that takes place in 1940. Well, during World War Two, the the novel was written in 1945, if I'm correct. Uh, yes. Whereas the, the the rest of the of the series itself is set in the past, in the 1920s and 30s, yes. and it's all about remembering this lost world. Yes. 
lost world, you know, we, we say in English antebellum, you know, the time before war, but of course it wasn't, it was after a huge war, mm. you know, mm. but there was something for a moment here in this aristocratic class, this very Catholic class, uh, where they could live as if war didn't exist, as mm. if the whole future was ahead, or at least the great war, World War One, was over, and you thought, thank goodness, that's it, we're done now. You know, um, and of course, how wrong they were. Um, and so that kind of magical sensory thing, as you say, paradisical, I would also say, you know, that Phil, the, the TV series is very Catholic, as we know, and it is trying to say something about grace, that idea that, you know, kind of absolute rapture, what Joseph Campbell called the rapture of self-loss, isn't only about drinking and flirting and wearing beautiful dresses, etc. You know, it's also about what Evelyn Waugh calls a twitch upon a thread, the sense that you're being pulled in a direction of grace, of spirituality. And the TV series tries to get to that as well. Mm. You know, I've put up super Catholic, taught by nuns. I was a, a um what, what we call an altar boy, etc. You know, so I had been indoctrinated by I thought a rather vulgar and debased sense of of what religion is, what God is, what duty is, what vocation is. And here was something in its very snobby aristocratic way was trying to say there's something else. It's like there's a kind of hovering world with the ja Japanese called the floating world. And I was very interested in that. Hmm. Yeah. There's really a feeling of timelessness. Uh, yes. to that moment in time, isn't there? And I, I wonder if this is not somehow connected to the fact that, especially in the first, let's say, three or four episodes, which are the, the ones that really have the strongest feel for this Arcadian landscape, yes. um, This if this is not connected to Oxford somehow, to yes. a place that transcends history. I think so. You know, and as you can imagine, for me in Belfast, Oxford was not only as far away as Siberia psychologically, it was also aesthetically the opposite of this city, which by the, my city, which had been multiply bombed, etc. you know, but I, I, I bought that idea of the kind of golden spired Arcadia, you know, I, I sort of bought that. I don't know. When I go to Oxford now, I see homelessness, you know, and I, I, I was too young to know the full, you know, sort of sociology of what Oxford is, you know, but I certainly bought it through the brilliance of the writing, I think, and the ev evocative filming and, you know, that golden glow that they create around it. I'm thinking too that this relationship is very interesting and and tied somehow for me to the tension between the very literary quality and this beautiful you know off camera narration that we yes. get very detailed and long compared to many television series and the notion of what is unsaid and all of the ambiguity that surrounds this this series. I'm just yes. wondering how you feel about that. First of all, I really agree about the voiceover. When I look back at my own films, there are lots and lots of voiceovers. Not always, but I've made 23 feature length films. Probably 17 of them have voiceovers, you know, and maybe that came from seeing how brilliantly it works in Brideshead. You know, the conventional wisdom in, 
in the film industry is that you only use a voiceover when it's necessary, when mm. you have to. But Billy Wilder said exactly the opposite. Only use a voiceover when it w isn't necessary. Mm. Think of the voiceover in Sunset Boulevard, for example, you know, and I really agree with that. I think the voiceover in Brideshead is an aesthetic and poetic device. It is, you know, it is doing some story work, but mm. its chief its chief pleasure is the beautifully, uh, beauty of um, Jeremy Arndt's delivery, the elegance of the writing, etc. So I think I feel strongly, Marisa, that I agree with that the voiceover is a key aesthetic element. And sorry, what was the other bit of your question there? Um, just a bit the tension, if you could comment on this kind of contrast between, on one hand, so much spoken word that's used yes, and then yes. on the other hand the sense of ambiguity that runs throughout the yes. series in terms of what remains unexpressed or unsaid yes there's a lot you know the like many films and tv programs with voiceover we realize that we're seeing it from one point of view from from Jeremy Irons' character Charles's point of view, and so when you when you have when you stick to these points of view, then a lot is left out. You know, I think, and you know, it's always interesting to see films and TV things, TV shows that leave stuff out. I think the great master of this was Abbas Kiarostami in Iran, for example, and I worked with Abbas, and I could see where he left out key bits of the story, you know. And here in Brideshead, there are, there's a sense that the whole castle uh, in which it all happens, the old stately home, has rooms that are unexplored, mm -hmm. you know, and that's a kind of metaphor for the TV series itself, you know. There are unexplored rooms in this mansion, there are unexplored rooms in the narrative, and there are unexplored rooms in ourselves as well, you know, that sense, you know, that I love that um, book by, by Gaston Bachelard about poetic space, you know, the rooms, the attics, and you have a real sense in Brideshead of who's in the attic and what's in the attic, you know. And so all sorts of things are left out, you know, the, the relationship between the two male characters is is noticeably ambiguous, whether it's an erotic relationship or not, you know, and um, the way that Charles's character transfers his romantic love from the brother to the sister is so interesting as a, as a piece of transference, you know, lots of ambiguities around that, I think, you know. And, and since so much um, gravitates around this notion, uh, around this device of the voice over uh, and about the, the, the memories that uh, are expressed by Charles, one wonders uh, about the reliability of the narrator. Yes. What's interesting about that is, you know, that a, a lot of a lot of the TV in the UK at that time was satirical or ludic, you know, or mocking, you know, there's nothing mocking here. There mm. might be an unreliability here, you know, there might be a sense that Charles didn't fully understand his own emotions, or of course, he, he has tidied them up for the purposes of making a kind of sequence out of his evolving a sense of himself, you know? So there's all of that. And yet there's nothing Brechtian, there's nothing modernist about this. This is another reason why I should hate Brideshead, you know, because I'm a modernist, you know, my I'm Corbusier and I'm Virginia Woolf and I'm Jean-Luc Godard, these people who broke things up and ironized the world. Um, and this, doesn't 
But yes, Charles, of course, is unreliable. You know, he doesn't want to admit to himself how sad he is at the end, you know, how lonely he is, you know, what a failed painter he is, you know, as an he has achieved more than his beloved Sebastian ever did. And yet Sebastian was a far more exciting human being than Charles was, you know. So that's one of the themes as well, you know, uh, how you can be disappointed in yourself. You, you could argue that contrary to the modernists, um, this film is trying to put things back together. Uh, isn't it to, to, to recreate a world uh, instead of breaking one? But one doesn't know if in the end um, this is really a tilt or, or if it is like a pirate yes. victory. Yes, yes. But when you think of what had, was happening in the 20s, James Joyce, Ulysses, you know, Mussolini, you know, all sort of uh, T.S. Eliot, The Wasteland, all this stuff was all happening, you know, wildly modern um, uh, multiverses, you could say, you know, and... Um, Brideshead isn't a multiverse, you know, it's two worlds, one looking back at another, you know, and um, seeing a kind of looking back through rose-tinted glasses, you know, to seeing a, seeing a moment which isn't really very informed about the outer world, it's about a young man's inner world. And what I love about it, what's so moving about it is that he's child is open to anything. He comes from a boring family where people read at the dinner table and don't talk to each other and don't put the house lights on and you can hear the ticking clock everywhere. So it's, you know, he comes from a world which isn't alive. He's a sleepwalker. He's a somnambulist. And then he gets to this world that is super alive and he goes for it. He doesn't judge it, at least initially. He just wants, he says, I want more champagne. I want more summer days. You know, I want more beauty. I want more strawberries. I want more of everything, you know, and that's very, very touching. And it's a universal theme. I just saw um, uh, Alexander Payne's new film, um, and it's about a main character who's half alive and it takes him a long time to realize that and he's been half alive all his life so it's a great theme i think i was blind now i see and can we talk a little bit maybe about the representation of sexuality and the fact that on one hand there is this ambiguity and nonetheless there are hints but i'm wondering in terms of the time period when it was shown on television how that might have been received at the time and how it differed from other projects that that were screening at the moment yeah i think there was no there was no clear sense you know in the at no point in the um in the tv series do we see uh sex between the two men we see heterosexual sex i remember seeing the two main actors on a popular chat show in the uk after brideshead went out and the uh interviewer a guy called michael parkinson said to them said to the two of them it is a homosexual relationship isn't it and i was shocked i thought what is it i didn't know that you know and, you know and there you know there are hints in the book and in the film but i think the ambiguity of that's interesting you know and i think that I think what's what makes it quite modern is that it's not saying you have to choose sides in this position, you know, it's not a kind of polar proposition in a way, you know, and I think that thinking back to the UK in the 1980s and Thatcher and the crackdown on queerness and LGBT people was very, very strong, you know, so it was very bold for the most commercial TV channel to 
um, make a series which respects the book in allowing fully and celebrating the possibility of romantic love between two men, even whether whether um, it's sexual or not, it sort of doesn't matter. You know, it's open-heartedly romantic. You know, and you know, and I loved that as well. You know, it was it was important important for me. You know, I was I was it was clear to me from an early age that particularly those of us who love cinema, there's something kind of bisexual in the heart of cinema. That you know, when you watch when you watch Hitchcock's Vertigo. You just you fall in love both with Kim and with Jimmy, you know, and there's something very super available about that. And so I I, I instinctively liked that aspect of this series. I suppose that we we fall in love with the entire family, really. Yes. Um, and and we too, as the audience, sort of become ingrained within the the functioning of this dysfunctional family. Yes. yes. <laughs> now, even you know the the mother, uh, Lady Marchman, you know Claire Bloom, played by Claire Bloom, she becomes a monster, you know, in some way, you know, and there are people do horrible things to each other in this this extended family saga of twenty years or whatever. They um hurt each other. And often they blame God, you know, it's always triangulated. There's some man up there who's making us do this stuff, you know, but we, you know, we fall in love with them because they're so charming and, and so beautiful and so, um, so in touch, so, so decadent, I think, you know, and that's always appealing, you know, and there's this this UK film Saltburn, directed by Emerald Ferrell, which has created a huge impact in the UK. It's a very big film, and it touches on some of these things as well. Not nearly as well, I think, as Brighton, but it, you know, it sort of celebrates pure decadent aristocracy um, mm. and its behaviours and its, um, yeah, its behaviours. <laughs> But uh, to come back to the um, relationship between Charles and Sebastian, um, yes. it, it is very open to the possibility of such a relationship. But at the same time, um, the, the the book and the film uh, sort of uh, make the point that uh, he needs to move out of it in order to be with Julia. Uh, and I thought that was a bit conservative. Um, uh, yes, uh, it is. Yes, movement. it is conservative. I mean, the whole thing's quite conservative in some way, you know. I think from... You know, the fact that the book and the think the TV series, but I know the book makes the point that um, Julia looks like Sebastian and the casting, you could say that doesn't work. I think if they'd cast people who look more similar, it would have added an extra kind of Freudian sense of transference. You know, mm -hmm. there is a sense that Charles wants to move on from because Sebastian is a boy man, you know, he's carrying a teddy bear. There's something of the of the nursery school about him, the maternelle almost about him, you know, and so it, Evelyn Waugh seems to be suggesting that this is a transition phase where Sebastian teaches Charles how to love, then he transfers that skill set to an adult woman rather than a, a, an adolescent man kind of thing you know but it is conservative I think you know I think that but then Evelyn Wall was very conservative you know we know it was based in some of his own relationships and he became he converted to Catholicism started to despise some of his earlier um experiences in life and um so you know it's a it's a it's possible to imagine 
that this story became a pop, proper love triangle where Charles remained in love with Sebastian, mm. also in love with Julia. Mm. But Sebastian self-destructs, mm. doesn't he? His alcoholism kills him, you know, and that's what happened to Evelyn Waugh, you know, Evelyn Waugh's alcoholism and, and drug problems, you know, shortened his life substantially. And I think, therefore, you could argue that's conservative or just honest, mm. that you can't drink fine wine morning, noon and night forever. You can do it and be decadent and beautiful in your 20s, but let's flash forward 20 years, you know, <laughs> it's going to take its toll. And I think that's one of the themes in Bright's Every Visit in general, how life takes its toll, how love takes its toll. Can you love forever or is it too hard? Is it like drinking in the morning? Do you have to close down somewhat, you know? Yeah. And Julia is, I mean, Julia is a fantastic character, isn't she? You know, and, and Diana Quick is so utterly brilliant. I I met her a few times and I was, first time I was quaking, you know, because such an impact she has in that part you know that kind of she's like a kind of josephine baker almost in it you know she is mm. yeah. but uh, i was thinking that this uh, notion of uh, uh, burning the candle somehow uh, yes. really functions because of the temporality of um, the tv series because of the fact that it's 11 hours long and really yes. gives you the possibility to yes. experience first fully these uh um, golden age moment yes. before it fades away. And I think that this is something that um, TV series have on cinema. Um, I'm not trying to make a hierarchy yes. of them, but I mean, one strong point for TV series is their length. World building. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, they, it, you know, the, the Bright Heavy Visit was going to be six hours, I think, as I recall, you know, but then they made it longer because they realized that it needs to flow like honey. You know, it needs to create that, as you as you say, that those first hours of the paradise that we've referred to, you know, the Garden of Eden before you're banished. Um, and that definitely works. You know, we we are in that long enough. We need to see the repeated afternoon drinking and the repeat, the, you know, more than one summer, etc. Uh, that then sets up the decline and fall so beautifully and um, and of course the ending the last third is very hard to watch it's also not as good i think as the first half or so but very hard to watch it is because yeah. some of it's inevitable you know you know but um, sebastian is icarus basically you know and he can't stay golden and close to the sun you can't you know you get burnt but um, it's interesting thinking of this question of world building and the, the length temporality of the series, yes. because we did um, visit as well the, the film that was made in oh, yes, yes. And, eight. and, you know, we're not here to, to bash any projects, but you can really see compressed into that amount of time. It just doesn't function for this story and the mood and the evolution that we have to follow through the seasons of the characters. Yes. You know, if Brideshead, one of the things that Brideshead visit 
about is about time, time passing, and therefore eleven hours you can feel the time passing, and two hours you can't. You know, it's too choppy. That's that's definitely true, as you say. You say. I mean, I think there's some aspects of the film I thought that were good. Some of the casting and and the acting, and the I've seen several film versions. I think, but um, we need to feel time stop still. You know, for Charles, when he went to Brideshead in those golden summers, time stopped still. Each afternoon was endless, you know, and the biggest thing you had to do is dress for dinner, you know, and that, you know, we feel those afternoons in this series, you know, and those evenings, you know, yeah, feel it all. I remember when I first, of course, as soon as the series finished, I went to the house where it was shot, you know, and I dressed up in a suit and tie. <laughs> Me and my partner, and we drank champagne and, and <laughs> strawberries and just tried to, you know, sort of try to stop time and say, mm-hmm. nothing bad will happen ever again. You know, this is it. This is, you know, good night to woods, you know, a lot of, yeah, a lot of, I've spent a lot of time in Iran and a lot of, you know, Iranian poetry of Hafez and Saudi and Yumi and people like that are about that, you know, sitting in the shade in an afternoon, smoking the shisha pipe and and assuming that there'll be no tomorrow. This is it. Mm-hmm. Eternity is now, you know, and that's sorry, that's a long answer to your question about time, but that's why 11 hours matters you know and i'm thinking again on my own work you know because i asked myself once what impacted brideshead head have on my filming and the first one we've already talked about which is voiceover and the second one is duration i've made two 15-hour films and i'm on my third one the first one was story of film then women make film and now and they were never conceived as tv series they're always as film and i'm on the third one now so perhaps there's the sense of the epic mode, the kind of the slow unraveling story, you know, the river that widens and deepens. You know, perhaps that has had an influence on my own uh, sense of scale. I don't, I don't know. There was something that came to mind in relationship to this, and I hope you won't laugh, but if you're familiar with the stop motion um, film and series of The Wind in the Willows that was made in the UK in the in the 80s, I thought a lot about this question of the seasons passing and temporality and the use of voiceover. And it does have this very literary quality, every opening with a change of narration that's very poetic and sensorial and anchored in the passage of time and and the seasons. And I thought of it every time I watched Brideshead Revisited. I'm sorry, I haven't seen The Wind in the Willow, so uh, I I don't quite, yeah, but certainly time seasons poetics i think virgil's behind that you know they i think the classical poets are behind this quite literally so in some of the language in the book and the chapterization but also a sense of you know like you can't read virgil without coming across a sense of the seasons of spring and summer and autumn and the windmill as a kind of metaphor windmill more recently used as a metaphor for the the turning of the seasons what john ford and the searchers calls the turning of the earth you know there's all that sense in this mm-hmm. and the inevitability of change you know you try to hold on to a moment which is golden but you can't you know, and I think that's even at 15, I could see that that was insightful and valuable to understand that 
you know, everything will change. Yeah. yeah. Of course, change can be often for the better. And I'm a, a far happier person than I was when I was 15, for example. But I could see then that the, the, this Brideshead Revisited was about a sense of having lost something wonderful, a kind of love. I hadn't even been in love when I watched this, but I could also feel the sadness of come out the other, coming out the other side of it, which is, you know, the, the bittersweetness of it. It's a sort of um, cosmic poetry, uh, I think. Uh, something about, well, I would say Buddhist, about uh, the, the, the attachment and, and the, the necessity perhaps to accept that you can't uh, stay exactly. attached. Things. I think so. And I just wonder, you know, Evelyn Waugh, the author, traveled to the Far East, uh, didn't he? And um, but, you know, he was as you know, he was very colonial. So I suspect then he went went to, you know, Buddhist cultures. I don't know how open his mind would have been to learn uh, and become in, enriched by other ph philosophical traditions. But certainly there is that there. You know, he and his generation knew, remember, by the 90, even by the 20s and 30s some of the great stately homes of England were being closed down because you know the families were dying off and of course a socialist government was coming you know and and Evelyn Waugh hated that so even Evelyn Waugh said called the coming of the labor movement the dark ages mm. <laughs> so mm. he felt that his world was ending mm. the world of the 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 you know the big houses of England and their aristocratic tradition and what he probably called the golden thread or something like that you know and um, he felt at the end and when you think that some of the books that were really popular then were Spengler, Spengler's The Decline and Fall of Civilization or whatever it was called I can't remember the exact that was a key book in those times you know so there was a sense of the end of things and Evelyn Watt as a man of the aristocracy, absorbed that mm. and then filtered it, refracted it through, you know, a kind of idealized romantic re relationship, which mm. itself is, you know, you could say that Charles and, and Sebastian are modeled on certain type of sort of Greek or antique, you know, love affairs between young men. Yeah. It's a feeling of the Kali Yuga uh, from uh, Hinduism. I mean, we live in a in a dark age. <laughs> Voila, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's funny that we're piling quite a lot of things onto this, aren't we? We're 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 comparing it to the classical European tradition and some Asian philosophy, but I think it handles it. Mm -hmm. You know, if people haven't read the book or seen the series. Once you see it, you apprehend a richness here, don't you? About time and love and loss and decadence and the sensory world. David Hume, philosophy, you know, I think that, you know, oh, you know, you could, you could imagine Montaigne, the great French writer Montaigne, seeing this, he would have fucking loved, sorry, it's word, you're allowed to swear in your podcast. <laughs> he would have loved this, I think, you know. Yeah. Uh, so it's got, it's, it's rich enough and big enough, a big enough golden bowl to contain mm. this whole masala of themes and, and feelings. Mm. It truly does. And I know that you likened the series to Proust. Um, yes. 
And we certainly thought of that as well. And in connection with something we've already mentioned, this sensorality um, in relationship to, to memory. But um, I'm just interested to hear your take on Proust and the links. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think one of the things that why it reminds me of Proust and also of um, it reminds me strangely of Oscar Wilde's play Salome, you know, it's the stasis. You could say that this it feels like a TV series that's being watched at half speed. Mm. You know, YouTube, you've got a you can watch it full speed or twice. A, and there's a slowness. Charles's narration is very slow. The sense of the world passing is very slow. There's not much running. Mm or huge physical activity. And we think of when we think of Proust, our first mental image is him lying in bed, doing nothing, thinking back, you know, and the tiniest of little things resonating and making memory explosions. So one of the things that is Proustian about it is it's about not moving in stasis, um, emotion re recollected in tranquility. You know, that's a kind of Proustian idea, isn't it? You know, if you're moving, you know, Proust is the opposite of futurism, isn't he? You know, it's, you know, future where futurism celebrated automobiles and railways and journeys and the and the razzmatazz of New York in the 20s and the jazz scene. You know, Proust is something else, you know, it's where you kind of almost switch your sensorium off. You try to feel nothing in order to remember feeling everything. And I think that Brighthead is like that. You know, Charles has you know, started only half alive. And in the present tense, he's only half alive. You know, he's switched his sensorium off. He's no longer open to feelings. He's been hurt a lot, but he will allow himself to live a sensory past. And I think that's a very Proustian thing. You, you could argue that both um, uh, A La Recherche du Temps Perdu and um, Bright's Head Revisited are about inner trips. Inner yes, I think so. Hmm. I really think so, you know. You know, it's like, yeah, it's, um, it, it is that sense of having stopped your life in order to go inwards to really, you know, and, that, and the good thing is that Charles loved twice, you know, he loved Sebastian and uh, he loved Julia and that's more than most people get. You know, and so Charles is lucky, you know, and he's protecting himself and he's turned into his father in some way, you know, played by Gielgud. And, but at least he was there. Mm. And you could say that about Proust, you know, I mean, even if even if Evelyn Waugh is right and the 1940s were the dark ages, they weren't, you know, they were, they, you know, the Labour government lifted loads of people out of poverty and created the National Health Service in the UK. But even if Wall is right, at least Charles was in paradise. Mm. You know, and I think Et in Arcadia Ego, you know, those great paintings of of um of Poussin, which are in the Louvre, I think, aren't they? You know, and those are some of Poussin's probably my favorite French painter. And but to see that to see Et in Arcadia go in those paintings, it, there's the remind, at least I've seen Arcadia, you know, and I personally have, have had a very charmed life. I've had many and continue to have, you know, uh, to live in a very charmed world or charmed life. And Charles had it for a bit.
Some people don't get it at all. Indeed. Um, well, thinking back to this Proustian notion of all the layers of memory and love, of course, we we open in the present day of the series and Charles revisits his memories. But can we talk about the filmmaking then and what yes. your impressions of the filmmaking and the editing are to do so? Yes. You know, it's it's a classical style. We can call it that. You know, there's nothing modernist. You know, the you know the flashbacks happen in the way you would expect flashbacks happen. You know, there are no crash zooms. When you it's always interesting when you talk about film style. What isn't there? You know, there's no crash room. There are no jump cuts, as I recall. You know, the camera when it when it pans or tracks, it does so with a kind of glacial speed. You know, this. A TV series had two directors, as I'm sure you know, because they had to stop filming and then restart. And uh, Michael Lindsay Hogg and Charles Sturridge, I think they they copied each other's styles rather well. It's pure classical filmmaking, I think, you know, and uh, the music was very evocative, you know, and and it was it's now the kind of um Christian memory, you know, the Madeleine. I think when we hear that piece of music, we, those of us who saw it are all, you know, taken there. Um, casting, of course, you know, there's something high class to have Olivier and um, all these great people in it, you know, and that, that, you know, it's a kind of theatrical casting almost, you know, and so this spoke of high quality. It spoke of, you know, elite filmmaking. But there's nothing, at least I didn't feel it so long since I've seen it. I, there was, I saw nothing in the actual mise-en-scene or the editing style that would try to break uh, the kind of, you know, to try to raise a question over the nature of Utopia, for example. Obviously, the lighting, you know, you know, Charles's family home is very dark and gray, and the bride's head when you first get there is golden. It's bathed in golden light, and the costumes and everything. But there's no attempt to try to problematize or question the period detail, for example. Unless I, I didn't spot, I don't remember seeing anything. Mm. Oh, no, I completely agree with you, though it is interesting that there's a certain fluidity. It's so incredibly smooth that you can yes. see the way that memory functions and yes. might be able to make very unreliable associations yes. or jump from one to the next yes. very, very smoothly. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think that I think a lot of that has got to do with what we talked about earlier, the voiceover as well. Mm -hmm. Voiceover, the delivery of voiceover is such a fascinating thing, you know, and I've, I'm lucky enough to have worked with Jane Fonda and Tilda Swinton and Maggie Chung and, and Shamila Tagore and lots of people where I recorded their voice. And it's just fascinating to watch, you know, you knew it, it's almost always better for the kind of filmmaking that I do to get the microphone almost to touch their lips. Mm -hmm. so, so then they do less and less. And, you know, sound recorders say, oh, but I can hear the moisture in their mouth. And I say, I don't care. That doesn't matter. You know, if you can get that intimacy, it makes it the opposite of theatre. You know, I've never really understood theatre very much. Mm. Opera, dance, yes, but actual theatre, because they always feel as if they're shouting to me, you know, whereas the intimate of the voicing of the recording of Charles's voice in this adds to that sense of flow. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm going to take my time here. 
you know, I'm not anxious, you know, what I'm about to tell you has already happened, you know, and I'm just going to filter it and smoke my, you can imagine him smoking his pipe and closing his eyes and thinking back. Yeah, yeah um, I think it, it functions especially well, this um, closeness to the voice because of the very introspective nature of the work. I mean, yes. it really takes you inside him, uh, the, uh, the, the proximity of the voice to the mic. I think so, you know, and I think that Jeremy Irons' performance is very good, especially the older Irons, you know, look at that face, you know, it's like, no, there's nothing, there's no expression there, is there, you know, it's like he's, he doesn't want to get hurt again, I think, you know, he doesn't, you know, we, we don't really see too much of what he saw at war, but we presume he saw bad things and he's closed down. And I think, I suspect that's what he's like for the rest of his life, you know, closed mm. down uh, and go inwards because inwards is a safe place mm. and outwards isn't a safe place. So that's what he feels. I would argue pretty much the opposite of that, you know, but um, I think that Charles feels that. Mm -hmm. to, to, to come back to the filmmaking itself, there's perhaps one um, element that I found uh, particularly interesting, especially in relationship with the tempo, and that is the use of long shots. I think yes. that there's a quite a, a decent amount of uh, shots that would last for one or two minutes or yes. approximately. And I yes. think this is very specific to um, the mood that they're trying to create with this um, series. I think so, you know, and it's not, most of it isn't shot too closely, you know, and that's because it's about the house and the gardens and the clothes and the rooms, you know, and all that, you know, it's very much about that, Oxford and Brideshead and these places, you know. Later on, when when we start to notice Sebastian's alcoholism, it gets closer, I think, you know, but definitely the long shots themselves, that's part of, as, as we know, you know, even audiences who know nothing about cinema technique that like you can feel a long shot you slightly hold alexander sokurov says that you hold your breath until the cut even if you don't notice the cut mm. so there is a sense in brideside of holding your breath mm. you know and, and, and those longer takes um help us feel that mm. yeah mm. yeah and it's interesting to watch it in the era of Netflix, you know, where things are nowadays often cut quite a lot faster, you know, and, and not always, of course, you know, we, we see long take stuff as well, but there is a kind of, back then, remember on, B, on British TV, there were only three, maybe four TV channels, mm. certainly more than four, I can't remember when, when Channel 4 came along, so the audience was less likely to switch over. Yeah. yeah. I think there would be more pressure now to do at least do recaps or make the beginning fast, you mm -hmm. know, to catch the and that's one of the things as a filmmaker. I just it's why I never work for TV, you know, because the pressure to make the editing really fast in the first two or three minutes and constantly to remind people of what's just happened, you know, I just don't want to do that. Mm. Yeah. It, it, it really reminded me. Sorry, it, it really reminded me a lot um, when it comes to this tempo to um, the TV series Morse. I don't know if you've uh, seen it. Never really watched it, but I know it was very popular here, and it had the same. I think it's also set in Oxford, is it? Yeah, yes, yeah. Yes, yeah. Mm. Same thing. But again, it's interesting to ask what's not in Brideshead dream sequences. No, for example, mm. why not? You know, I mean, it is. I would say in some way, as well as Proustian, somewhat Freudian, but there's no. 
I know no, and there are no dream sequences in the novel, obviously, but it's possible to imagine it with those, you know, why not, you know? Mm. So it refuses, it's a very pared down aesthetic in a way, isn't it? It, it refuses mm. lots of techniques that were available to it. And as a filmmaker yourself, how do you feel Brideshead may have impacted the way that you approach filmmaking? If that's a relevant question, perhaps it's not. Yes, it is. Uh, you know, I think so. We've already talked about voiceover. I know that I love voiceover. It might be coming. It might come from Brideshead. I know I like the epic mode, and we've already talked about that. That might come from Brideshead. I know also that um, in a lot of my films, there there is a feeling that a kind of paradise is possible. You know, I've been, you know, I've often, I mean, certainly I'm very interested in elegy, you know, and, and a lot of my films are about remembering. Mm -hmm. uh, it's partly to do with my own life experiences growing up in, the, in a war, as, um, as we've mentioned, uh, then I was in my, in, I was in the siege of Sarajevo. We set up a cinema underground in Sarajevo, and you know, a terrible 10,000 10, people killed in that city. And I've made a film in Iraq during its war. And so I've been in multiple war zones. And each time I was in each of those places, I noticed something remarkable human fortitude, the survival instinct that, you know, we need, you know, and we want music and dancing and cinema, even at times of atrocity, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that really has given me a certain kind of sense of, you know, the opposite of et in Arcadia ego, even in death and even in war, we have roses as well as bread, you know, yeah. bread and roses. And so I think that that theme is sort of brideshead-y, I think, you know, that, that I've always been interested in acknowledging the moments of pure rapture in our lives mm -hmm. and i think that's in all my films my new film which will come out, come out this year is about a painter wilhelmina barnes graham a brilliant scottish modernist painter who had a troubled life and yet she concentrated on the rapturous moments in her life mm -hmm. as if the flow of life uh, had um, specific points that transcended uh, um, the 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 day-to-day -day movement of uh, this. I think so. I mm. think so. I mean, a lot of writers write about this, don't they? You know, Joseph Campbell, Baudelaire, uh, Schopenhauer, even. They, a lot of people try to talk about, you know, uh, of course, there's social life and there's paying your bills and there's the war on Gaza, all these things that you know, make it hard to lift your chin up and look at, at the horizon, you know. Um, but it still must be done, you know. We still need to dance and and drink wine and, you know, sunbathe naked and all these kind. You know, you still need to do this stuff. Uh, and and Brideshead Revisit is a reminder of that, you know. No matter what is going on, there are moments to capture and I think a lot of particularly liberal leftists which I am a liberal leftist a lot of liberal leftists don't get that bit you know they think that joy or just decadence 
is, you know, not Marxist enough. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Do you remember Ernst Lubitsch film Ninochka with Greta Garbo? Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. Do you remember what she says? You know, she's a Marxist, obviously, she's a communist, she's in Paris, and she says, Yes, come on, the revolution, but not yet. And do you remember <laughs> she, just, she just wants to sip her champagne and be <laughs> in love in Paris for five minutes for one night. And I think, you know, I think that aspect of Ninochka. And I think of Lubitsch more generally. We can see a little bat squeak of that in <laughs> Bright's head as well. You know, let's have fucking fun. You know, that's <laughs> yeah. yeah. Paradise is here for us if we know yes, where to find yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I think that I made a film called At Atomic, which was literally structured as Paradise, Paradise Lost, and Paradise Regained, which is of course classical Bride's Head. You know, so I think Atomic is probably my most Bride's Heady thing. You know, but. A number of times, my films have been structured basically in that Orphic structure. You know, you go, you something good, then you have to go to a very dark place, you know, and and into the underworld, and then, if possible, and it is possible in many cases to recover somewhat. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe that's an interesting segue into, I just wanted to address the other film that we may have discussed today, but it was your other proposition, which was Wells's Touch of Evil. Touch of evil oh, yes. taken. And of course, you've made a film about Wells. Yes. But um, what, a, what do you think could link perhaps your interest in, in the two? Is there a potential? Oh, that's interesting. Well, I had never thought about this, but of course, Orson Wells passionately believed in Paradise of Lost. Think of his film chimes at midnight, the English titles chimes at midnight, you know, the one about, you know, Falstaff. It's yeah. a it's, you know, love Wells used to love talk about the Merry England, which is now gone, you know, mm. the time the pure antebellum time, the time before the fall from the Garden of Eden. Wells believed that. And it's in quite a bit of his work. It's in Citizen Kane right there, you know, and um, you know, in the snowboat, the snow scene, you know, and um, so Wells really, this was central to Wells, this idea that there was a golden age, and that's why he loved Cervantes, and you know that and that's you know, um, so that was that was a big thing for him. And so I hadn't thought about that before, but you know, one of the reasons why I love Wells is that he allows for the possibility of bliss. Mm -hmm. but he was also deeply political, as we know, and incredibly impressively political in his advocacy of leftist cause and anti-racist cause and, you know, and et cetera. So there's a real connection there. Touch mm -hmm. of evil. I mean, there isn't much bliss in touch of evil. <laughs> it starts, you know, it starts, you know, in this, on this border zone, as you know, with this incredible shock. It starts in the dark. You know, and sort of stays in the dark. I suppose there is that moment of, in Touch of Evil where Hank Quinlan, the Orson Welles' character, goes to see Tanya, the um, the um, the Marlene Dietrich character, and her piano is playing a piano. Ding, 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 and she's smoking, and he's remembering a kind of perhaps moment of happiness in his youth, long gone. You know, he's Hank Quinlan, the Welles character. You know, can't be happy because he's he's Faust. You know, he's committed a Faustian pact. You know, he's broken the law, and he will continue to break the law. And yeah, but Orson Welles believed in all that—the kingly world, the knightly world. You know, yeah, of Don, Don Quixote. Yeah, but in both cases, it seems uh, as if 
um, this uh, golden age is linked to memory, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think Orson Welles believed there actually was a golden age, I think. Uh, I don't know. I never met him, but I know his daughter well, and I talked to him about her about that. But certainly, it, if if you express it in those terms, then yes, everybody can have a golden age. Hopefully, mm. if, you know, everybody can filter their past and transform the past. Even if you've had a shit childhood and a terrible life, you can improve it with your memory. Look at the films of Terence Davis, for example, the British filmmaker Terence Davis. And I know he's having a retrospective in the in Beaubourg soon, in Pompidou soon, you know. But he had a terrible childhood, but he used his cinema films like Distant Voices, Still Lives, etc., to um, revisit those terrible memories and perfect them through form. The gliding camera, the perfect image, the beautiful body, the gorgeous lighting, etc., you know. So... To that extent, you know, cinema uh, and storytelling is a way to take away the sting and to tidy up the past and improve improve on it to, in order to get on with the present. What about uh, Hitchcock in this context? How would you uh, position him in relation to these uh, <laughs> yeah, we notions? We should let our <laughs> listeners know that you have a film that's come out just last year on Hitchcock. My Hitchcock. name is Hitchcock. My name is Hitchcock. And in it, I imagine that I am... Or that I, so it's in the first person, Hitchcock talks to us. I know Hitchcock's a very different kind of artist and a di very different worldview. Obviously, especially in the eyes of the French critics more than the Anglo-Saxon critics, Hitchcock you know, was a moral philosopher in some way and had deep interest in Catholicism. However, you know, it's the ludic, playful side of Hitchcock that mm. I see really strongly. You know, I think that Hitchcock takes us to the edge of tragedy and then throws in a joke, you know, and we can see that in, you know, certainly Psycho and the early British pictures and, and most of them. So I think that Hitchcock's playful modernism uh, is to the fore. Mm. I think, you know, Hitchcock made very serious pictures in the 1920s and then again in the 50s, Vertigo, etc. But mostly he was an ironist, you know, I think he's 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 always raising an eyebrow. You know, I think he's closer to Moliere than mm. he is to Baudelaire or someone like that. You know, he doesn't let himself go fully mm. emotionally, except for in a few pictures, mm. maybe Barney, maybe uh, um, Vertigo. Mm. And he was an inventor of form. Yes. Uh, uh, yeah, well, certainly, I mean, as you know, he learned a lot in Germany in the 30s, I like a lot, and the 20s, sorry, in the 20s. Um, so, and he took those ideas of Murnau and others and Fritz Lang and people, uh, and, but he was, yes, he did invent forms, but, but he, as we know, he could see the whole film before it started, and now in the era of neuroscience, there's mm. a a word for that and the English word is hyperfantasic so he could see the whole film in advance and that was so brilliant he knew when the camera would go to the ceiling and vertigo he knew exactly when to move use the slow tracking POV etc you know so 
a kind of hyper visualization of cinema. He had that. Terence Davis had that. I think Orson had that as well. Although Orson relied on improv a little bit more, I think. Let's see what happens. You know. As we near the conclusion of the podcast, we always like to finish by asking our guests the question: Is there something you wish we had asked you? Um, no, I think you've <laughs> given me a good working over. <laughs> I've never had to think about Brighthead before in this way, and I'm grateful to both of you for helping me do so, because it's often, you know, sometimes we don't have an opportunity or don't have a need to think through something that we're passionate about. So, no, I think I, I think we've touched on a whole range of, you know, philosophical and stylistic and romantic themes and political themes as well, you know, so I think we've touched on everything, you know, I think the Catholicism is something, you know, that uh, is, is will, will remain, you know, in a lot of stuff that I'm interested in, but I think we've really covered it well. Thank you for listening to After Images. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow After Images podcast on social media.